Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelican. You are listening to episode 119, and tonight we are covering the top five most overrated sequels of all time. Um, this is kind of a follow-up to our nearly three-hour episode last week, um, covering the uh, Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. Um, no feedback yet on that that I like necessarily heard of. Um, but um, I'm going to be honest between that because I think you said that maybe it's the quick cage you said that you were you were depressed after that episode um, um, but between that this and then the cage movie that you conned me into watching last night I wouldn't say I'm in a dark place dour it's like a I've been in a dour mood recently thinking about all of these movies. So I'll be very happy when this episode is over tonight and we can move past it and get back to the things when we talk about the things um, that you like. Um, because I think I think two I think two in a row is too 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 many episodes plus the quick cage now that we're on the tail end of that with how many bad movies there are. Um, I think talking about like things in a negative way, um, I'd be glad to move away from that and just leave that to the quick cage um for the rest of the year so how you feeling about this list frank because good can't hmm. be the word because you're saying normally your response is i'm feeling oh i'm feeling pretty good about it yeah I, so i don't feel terrible about it i mean i don't know it'll be i have stuff to say about every one of these movies so i don't know i guess it's it's fine i think it'll be fine yeah, I don't uh, know. It, it's they range from just like mediocre to I don't know, really bad in my opinion. But um, when you look them up on like Internet Movie Database or um, Rotten Tomatoes, they all have pretty high scores. Um, all are mostly lauded, I think, as being like the best or among the best of their um the whatever sequel trilogies or series that they're in all of all of these movies have a critical score of over 90 percent on rotten tomatoes and at least an 85 audience score on so yes these i i've, I've double checked like this and like many of these are like the most highly rated among yeah sequels. um i guess it's more than just being like overrated sequels it's sequels where and i think you probably agree with me here like i just don't understand why people love them as much as they do yeah yeah like the most perplexing perplexingly beloved sequels of all time or something yeah like the number one movie on your list which is probably going to be the one that would upset them possibly the most people that are listening and there should probably almost be like a disclaimer like you can see what movies are going to be on this list before you watch it it's like um so maybe you know if you really love those movies um and you don't like hearing criticism of them you want you want to um you want to maybe not listen uh but um 
you're open to hearing other people's opinions. I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time reading on about that number one movie, like what people like about it. And like, it's the one out of all of them that I just don't get. Like, it's that's, and that's all I have to say about that movie almost, except for you know, the shit on it. I just don't get it. Like, the other ones, I can kind of see where they're coming from at times. I can't get the number one movie on this list. At all. I think that I can maybe explain it to you when we get to that point. Okay. Because I've been thinking a lot about it too, and I think that I have a theory. Yeah. But, um, okay. Yeah. I want to give a shout out, honorable mention to um, X2 in terms of making this list because it was one that I seriously considered putting on it but I just philosophically don't like things about Singer's X-Men movies so I don't necessarily think it's a terrible movie I just think that I don't know You you like those movies initially right? So I'll I'll say this and then I'll elaborate more on it when we get later into the podcast. Okay. So it relates, yep. I I think that when I watched those movies, I was just so starved to see iconic comic book characters on the screen and treat it in a way that was meaningful and like somewhat reverential. Sure. That I let myself in just enjoy those movies. Whereas when you see superheroes done better, as we've seen in the past like fifteen years, that Mm -hmm. they kind of don't hold up as well and even to the point where i think that a lot of the reboot x-men stuff like the first class um series of x-men movies are better than the singer movies in terms of being like x-men movies sure sure but at the time i mean what else did you have it was like oh man it's awesome to see right up on the big screen it was also awesome to see nightcrawler like fucking flash through the white house and stuff like that yeah right and in a lot of ways, it was a validation of comic books as like a meaningful artistic medium, which I think even in whatever the first X-Men movie is, like 2000 or whatever, um, there still was some some question there where comics were kind of seen as like, I don't know, like almost a, like an embarrassing thing to be into or whatever. So, yeah. And I've always loved comic books. I think comics are a, a fantastic medium. For storytelling, so yeah. All right, so let's just go ahead and jump right in and get into jump, these movies. Jump on into it. First movie on your list, number five on the list, is 1964's Goldfinger, the first sequel to in the Bond series, um, Doctor No being the original. Uh, it's directed by Guy Hamilton. It stars Sean Connery, Honor Blackman, Gout Fruba. Uh, Shirley Eden. It has a 99% from critics and an 89% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and um, why it's on this overrated list? Um, it's actually the third Bond movie. Oh, really? What's second? Yeah. Uh, what the fuck? Um, hold on, I gotta look. Ah, fuck, I fucked that up. There's another one in between it. Okay. Um, it doesn't really matter, but it still is like one of the highest rated of all the Bond movies. No, from Russia, Russia, from, Russia. from Russia yeah. with Love. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I see it now. Um, so it's on this list because I don't necessarily think Goldfinger is a terrible movie. I think it's an incredibly dated movie, but I think you can say that about pretty much any Bond movie, like maybe even like up to and including um, Goldeneye. Um, 
where they start to really move into like the more modern like um i don't know conventions of storytelling and they move away from like bond being kind of a rapist sort of um definitely rapist in this one yeah it's a pretty convoluted plot um for being like honestly like not that complex of a movie um bond is on vacation in miami and is put on to this guy um Arik goldfinger uh who's a like a, a con man sort of like he runs like this high stakes rummy game that he's using um uh jill masterson i think is the character's name to um spy on and like basically help him cheat to win so bond blackmails him into losing all this money and then sort of invokes or provokes his ire um so they then find out that he's moving a bunch of gold around like an inordinately large amount of gold and so bond goes to try and trick him by wagering a nazi like kurgrand or however you say that Mm -hmm. like a five thousand pound value gold bar um basically bond gets involved with this guy he ends up getting captured by this guy and like held prisoner um meets the one of the more iconic i think bond girls from the first part of like the bond series and um honor blackman's pussy galore um ends up judo fighting her into submission where he then like forces himself on her um it turns out the goldfinger's whole plot is that he wants to detonate an atomic weapon inside of fort knox and irradiate all the gold in it this introduces um goldfinger who's an iconic bond villain um ajab who's an iconic bond villain um but it's just such a boring movie like i think the bfi when i looked had this rated as um, number 70 of the top 100 british films of all time which is crazy to me Uh um and the thing is is like there's parts of this movie that are okay like there's a scene in the beginning of the movie where he has to infiltrate um, some hideout and plant plastic explosives to blow it up. Um, that's actually pretty well done for being like a 60s spy movie. Like it's 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 a decently filmed scene. And then it's just James Bond being like a Lothario for 20 minutes. And then James Bond playing golf with this dude. I mean, there's a couple times in the movie where the action is decent. And I think that the Bond movies always do like car chase as well and they tend to do um i mean for being like kind of lame in the sense because they're done in the 1960s and the choreography isn't the same they tend to do fight scenes okay like the fight scene between bond and um Ajab, um towards the end of the movie where he electrocutes odd job is actually pretty funny like with bond just like basically going like uh, uh, and like running away from this guy the whole time um it's got some pretty incredible racism in it in a lot of ways. Like it has Asian characters from all different countries and it just kind of lumps them together as these like Orientals basically. Um, Like some of them are from China. Some of them are from, I don't know, I think Thailand. Some of them are Ajab is said to be Korean, but then is speaking Mandarin. So it's just like a complete lack of understanding of the difference between like different, you know, asian nationalities um it's really sexist even though like the women are all 
that's maybe the best part of aside from like the fact that James Bond is always going to be better than any woman he meets and is always going to bed like every woman he meets like at least all the women in this movie have some element of skill to them mm-hmm. like Pussy Galore is an accomplished um, pilot she has a whole team of these blonde pilots that are like really good um, whatever pilots um, what's her name um, Jill Masterson and her sister are both kind of spies in their own right and her sister's like an expert sniper and i mean their women are you know like at least talented they're not just like window dressing but then ultimately they are just window dressing it's just about james bond's gonna talk you out of your pants basically right, or they're, force they're, you out of them sure they're all receptacles in the end like according to this universe i mean it's just it's really long and it's not that interesting for long portions of it it doesn't really ever feel like there's any like high stakes to this movie. There really um, isn't. I like, yeah, I, it's like, and I remember watching this as a kid thinking that there were stakes and it's like, there, there really isn't like particularly rewatching this one. There's not, it doesn't feel like it's meaningful in any way, like the plot of it, even though obviously it is, <laughs> there's no sense of tension or, anticipation even there's some scenes in this movie though that are like super iconic in terms oh of... absolutely i mean i could see this being on the top bfi top iconic movies of all time but not yeah the best like the scene where bond is tied to the table and the um, goldfinger's laser is like slowly uh-huh. carving a swath up the middle to, like aim at his crotch i mean that's stuff like that that has been you know sure. parodied in movies yeah. all over the place it's just You've said this before, and I've never 100% agreed with you, but I think I agree with you now. Like, Sean Connery is maybe the worst Bond. Like, he's very wooden. He seems pretty old for being, like, yeah, this athletic, like, spy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Although you could say that about everybody except for maybe, um, who's the one you hate? Roger Moore. Roger Moore yeah. doesn't seem, like, super old and... George Lazenby doesn't seem super old, but like Connery and Dalton, mm-hmm. um, even Pierce Brosnan, you know, in the nineties is like, feels like an older man. So I don't know. Yeah. Just it, the reason it made the list in the first place was because I was trying to look, I was looking at highly rated sequels. And then I was looking at um, movie franchises that I knew had a lot of sequels and golden. I was um, typically or gold Goldfinger was typically highly ranked among like all the Bond movies, and I was thinking, like, yeah, like that's that's probably a little too high for this movie to be ranked. So, yeah, I mean, and and we were going to do a Bond episode until I watched Doctor No, <laughs> and like, <laughs> what was the the conversation between us was I watched Doctor No, I was like, oh my god, I can't believe how bored and bad this movie I'm am and how bad this movie is, and you were like, I don't know why we were going to do that Bond episode anyway, right? Um, and. So we're still doing it this month, um, just in a different way than we intended. Um, I, I I was pretty shocked by watching Doctor No and then this, like how just bored I was, like the entire time watching both of those movies. Um, and I remember liking these more when I was very young because I saw all these at a very young age, like a, a lot of these Connery movies. Um, I think it's to me. I think it's a large part of it is. Uh, a child of the 90s and 
loving the first awesome powers like i think is like it acts as like an expose to where it's like you can never take the connery bond seriously ever again mm, yeah and because uh, a lot of stuff in this movie is referenced in Austin Powers. I would say this is just as much it's this movie that Austin Powers largely is kind of like making fun of in some ways. Um you know, the laser beam stuff, a lot of vagina as opposed to pussy galore, the odd job, like you know, reference in it, like um the competent female, like, you know, um I think a lot of like, you know, the the stuff that, that movie's kind of like making fun of comes directly from Goldfinger. Um but yeah, I just don't think I can take them seriously anymore. It's kind of like weird reference maybe. But do you remember that like SNL skit where Norm Macdonald did David Letterman? No. No. Yeah, maybe a little. And it's like the 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 thing that's weird about the sketch is that he just does David Letterman. It's like maybe he like tweaks Letterman. If Letterman is a 10 out of 10 himself, it's like he tweaks letterman to 11 maybe and just does it just does it straight just like as letterman would do it and it kind of exposed letterman to me a little bit like oh like his shtick really out of context isn't like that funny um and i think i think austin powers did something like that psychically for me as a teenager where it's like oh these movies aren't very good they're actually right. pretty fucking absurd and ridiculous and um and outdated. I mean, because that's certainly a thing Austin Powers was doing as well. Like, is like showing like how like you know sexist and you know like those movies were and stuff like that. And um, so yeah, I just don't think I can take them seriously anymore um, at all. And so watching this, it's like I was just bored mostly, except for when I was offended um, and just like how that that rape scenes like. I call it a rape scene, but it's like he he forces himself on her, and then she likes it, and it's like Jesus, Jesus. Ugh. I mean, that's a pretty common trope in um, movies from that. Yeah, era, sure, sure. I know. Yeah, it just doesn't. None of it ages well to me. Um, what I was fascinated—the only thing I'll say last about this—what I was fascinated in seeing is that um, most people that love praise this movie in terms of audience reviews, like on Rotten Tomatoes, they they praise it for its corniness. So they think it's funny, like now in hindsight, or they just think that it's a a good popcorn flick. Um, So nobody necessarily loves this movie. I don't think, yeah, I don't understand it as a popcorn flick. I think it's way too dull for long stretches of it. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so that's why people like it. Is it like, so it's like this kind of like lukewarm popcorn flick thing, or they like it because it's they think it's funny in hindsight um so that's interesting that was interesting to me so it's like i don't know how much audience wise there's still love for this movie i think people that really enjoy james bond as a character this is the genesis of like who james bond is for the remainder of you know like pretty much every bond movie up until the most recent um uh revival of it with uh daniel craig yeah yeah so. Yeah, yeah. So, somewhat sardonic, somewhat condescending. Yeah, completely full of himself. I don't know, just Cad who likes martinis shaken, not stirred, and 
Yeah. Drives an Aston Martin with um crazy features. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So yeah, so that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever watch any of those like Connery Bonds ever again. Like for the I rest really of my life. Need, yeah, I don't really don't think there's a need to anymore. Yeah, it's not even like necessarily a judgment on them. It's just like I get it. Like watching them as an adult again, like those two of them. It's like I, I don't think there's any. They're not going to be beneficial in my life ever again. Like in any way. I I would like to meet someone under the age of like fifty. That loves those James Bond movies and have them explain to me why they love them. Mm. I think I, that's the thing. I think it's just, I think it's an, a product of the time. Mm-hmm. And it was something where I'm trying to think of a good like example to this. I, I don't know. Like how we grew up like with Schwarzenegger and um, Stallone and you right. go back and watch some of those movies right and they're just super goofy now like there's not or like chuck norris you know chuck norris became like a whole meme uh-huh like in the 90s but we like oh like these are awesome action movies but uh-huh. they're really not like maybe that's the thing maybe it's like sure <clears throat> our parents generation being teenagers being like oh man i wish i was james bond getting all these girls and being sure. super cool and yeah <coughs> right yeah yeah maybe uh, yeah, that's probably it's probably right because I mean, look, like we talked about Commando like last year around this time, and um, Commando is super fucking goofy. Um, even though I loved it as a kid, and I still kind of still love it now, you know. I mean, um, in in an oddball kind of way, I'd probably say it's a good it's a good popcorn flick. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, there's probably a generational difference there that uh, certainly should be acknowledged. Not a generational difference here, I don't think. Um, number four on your list is Silence of the Lambs from 1991. Uh, directed by Jonathan Demme. Stars Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, Ted Levine, and Anthony Heald. It has a 96% from critics, a 95% from audiences. Um, it is the highest rated movie, I believe. Uh, yes, on this list from audiences. Um, so the highest one overall. Uh, you're you played a little game to get this on the list. Um, if I, I if I say so myself. Um, but yeah, this is a hundred percent cheating. <laughs> um, but it was never going to make a list. I don't think. Uh, otherwise, so I, I forgive you. Um, so technically, you're saying this is a sequel to Manhunter, right? Yeah, it's a. I mean, um, sequentially, Silence of the Lambs takes place after Manhunter, anyway. So right, sure. All right, so um, tell us a little about this movie and why you uh, cheated to get on the list. Um, so it's on the list because I think Silence of the Lambs is pretty universally regarded as one of the greatest movies of the 90s and in some people's Absolutely. estimation, one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, it definitely uh, gets most of its acclaim because of um, the performance of Anthony Hopkins playing Dr. Hannibal Lecter in this movie um and also i think uh jody foster at the time was pretty widely regarded as having like giving an excellent performance here oh um, well i mean the, this one best picture best director best actor best actress so yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. you know and demi is a pretty pretty well respected guy especially at this time so 
what I would say about it is, I mean, so I think that most people are listening probably know the story of Silence of the Lambs, where sure. um, there's a serial killer, Buffalo Bill, who's skinning women. Um, Jodie Foster, who's a young FBI agent, is brought in to investigate the killings and um, eventually uses the knowledge of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, um, who's not only like one of the world's most foremost criminal psychologists, but also a psychopath and a cannibal himself. Um, a lot of cat and mouse stuff, Hannibal playing both sides against each other, um, especially trying to basically profile Foster and bring her own like demons to light and um, sort of playing mind games with her. Um, and in the end, she ends up, you know, whatever, taking Buffalo Bill down, um, mostly because of, or in part because of Hannibal's help, like finding out where he is. Um, I loved this movie when I was a kid. Um, I was probably 14 or 15 when I first saw Silence of the Lambs. Um, and I, like, I was really into horror movies, so to me, something that kind of skirts that line of horror, like being this really important and popular movie was, um, I don't know, sort of affirming to me, or like it was... I don't know, like tacitly giving my interests like some validity maybe or something. Um, and I had watched this movie probably like four or five times in the short period of time between when it came out on video and like the mid to late nineties. Um, and then every time a Hannibal, you know, a sequel involving Lecter would come out, I would watch it again. And over time, like I started to become less and less impressed with, mostly the performances in the movie um and in particular hopkins um scenery chewing uh hannibal lecter um the real like big turn for me and i think you agree with this is mads mickelson doing the character on television's hannibal Mm -hmm. um in a way that was just so refined and calm and like brilliant and actually still, and actually medicine yeah without with, with still like a huge amount of like menace to everything like there's an undertone of danger like every time he's on screen talking to somebody and it's hopkins and maybe it's the fact that he's trying to play someone that's psychotic or the fact that hannibal's imprisoned or whatever but like it's just it's so I don't know, like Grand Grand Gugnol or whatever. Like it's very over the top and manic, and there's still some really good scenes in this movie. And again, this is another movie that's got a lot of stuff that's kind of iconic. Liz- li- lizardy, like I don't know whatever better word. He tries to like, it's like he thinks serial killer. He thinks like, like he has to play him like in this kind of reptilian way. Yeah, right. And I and I, I think yeah, it, like in hindsight, it's a bad choice. Yeah, like smacking his gums and yeah, doing that stuff. Um, Which that was his choice. He had with that, from what I understand. The, that, 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 that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I don't know. It, like, it just doesn't hold up anymore. I don't think. And for yeah. something that's so widely glorified as being this great film, I mean, there's so many other movies that just kind of take a similar idea or whatever and just do it better. I mean, there's yeah. so many better 
like if you want to see a truly great serial killer movie like and we've talked about this on the podcast a number of times but you know henry portrait of a serial killer is right around this time and is so much more horrifying as like a look at someone who's you know a psychopath it, and it, I understand. yeah go ahead sorry i mean i understand that this movie is more of a procedural right and i don't i don't by any means think that silence of the lambs is a bad movie i just think that it's the fact that it's still praised to the level that it's praised means that I don't think that people are going back and reevaluating it. I think people are just remembering how they felt when they first saw it. And I don't think you can do that anymore with that movie. Cause I don't know that it has much relevance today. Uh, yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think it's lost its relevancy in a lot of ways while being kind of game changing at the time. Sure. Um, and and not only game changing because the thing I took away from it watching it this time, having not watched it recently, even though I came to similar conclusions that you did after watching Hannibal, uh, Hannibal was a revelation to me about like how that character could be told, um, and how that, and look, I mean, I'm looking. It it, it it owes Hannibal owes something to Silence of the Lambs. It does, like you know, absolutely. Um, in the sense that it allowed those kind of stories to be told in the mainstream. In one way, I also don't think in terms of direction because one of the things I, I noticed in this movie rewatching it is that like, for as much as this was like lauded in terms of its directing, at the time I can kind of understand it. But when you lived through the 90s and early 2000s and you saw the X-Files and CSI and all these other procedurals that had like dark tones to them at times, they just copied, I mean, to its credit, like they just copied a lot of like Demi's techniques um, and, and, and put it on. But it's been done better since then. And it's been expanded on since then. And we just live in a different time now. To where, while yes, it was important at one point, and it's a predecessor of a lot of how procedurals changed in the way that they were filmed, it's been done better at this point, and right. it's not very impressive anymore. And I was going to say, agree. that's when I pause. It's like, I think Hannibal, in some ways, still owes something to the look of Hannibal if you follow it in a lineage. Like, from Demi's... Silence of the Lambs through procedurals of the 90s and early 2000s on television and how those got changed and adapted by people. It probably like in a, in a lineage, like it probably owes something to Silence of the Lambs, but it looks better overall. It looks more modern. It looks more current. It looks more true to that story, I believe. And then the performances and stuff like that, I think, kind of send it over the top. Um, I mean, I would argue that any police procedural that came after Silence of the Lambs or some dead. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, and so I, I do think that um, I do think it's important for that reason. But going back and reviewing it, it's just like, eh, okay. You know who I think the best performance in this movie is? You want to guess who I think it is? Um, the guy that plays Jack Crawford. Yep, it's Scott Glenn. Yep, I think it's the best performance in the movie. Um, I, I, I think the guy that plays um Buffalo Bill is probably my favorite performance in the movie. 
even though it's like over the top i think there's i think that captures a sense of like vague barely controlled rage and confusion and menace is like what that mm-hmm. character is to me yeah like a guy who's trying to be something that he's not because obviously that's his whole psychosis or whatever sure. um but who's just barely able to contain his like craziness like 99 percent of the time and then it just is always like on the verge of coming out and yeah murdering people uh, this is the last thing I, I'll say, and it's a question to you more than anything. Do you, do you, how do you feel about the way, like, again, we know a hell of a lot more, just the average person knows a hell of a lot more about criminology and profiling and stuff like that than they did in 1990, right? Uh, or sure. 91, 91. But um, do you think this does a good job with that in hindsight at all? No, it makes it um, like theatrical. I mean, like, him, Hannibal being in the cage, like, in the middle of an empty, like, hangar or whatever. I mean, a lot of that stuff. Like, when they do that with, in the TV, in the television series, with, um, what's his name? Uh, The Will Will Graham character. Mm -hmm. Like, he's completely, like, there's no room for him to get free at all. Like, it's not like he's eating dinner or whatever. I, I don't know. Right, right. I think there's some really silly stuff to it that you just kind of took for granted because who knew any better in, you know, 1991. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So even from that standpoint, going back and look at it, I didn't find it very interesting. I guess it's a good mainstream primer for profiling, but it's not very intriguing or interesting in the way that they handle it um, in, in hindsight either. So and again, it's not a bad movie, like at all. It's just old and not as good as I thought it was at one point. Agreed. <sighs> all right. See, this is depressing too. I, I'll be really glad to get back to um <laughs> to to movies that you like because it is depressing on me to like shit on like things that I know. A lot of people probably love Um, because I one of the things I like doing is like it's what I try to do with the Dark Knight. You know, it's like I there's a lot of problems I have with that movie. I knew you had even more problems. I knew Bledsoe had tons of problems, and it's like I I don't want to be just like you know binary, right? Like that's part of the problem with the world today is like you know everything having to be like a one or a zero, right? Um, You know, um, so yeah, look, Silence of the Lambs is a fine movie. Um, you know, it's not offensive sure. necessarily. It's just not as good, as, and it's overrated. It's just not as good as you remember it being. I think if you go back and were honest about it, um, watching it. But yeah, I don't. I don't like shitting on things people I know really like. Uh, a couple of these movies, I, I, I might. But um, all right. So number three on your list is 2004's Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. It is directed by Alfonso Caron, uh, has uh, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, Rupert Grint, uh, all the principals that are always in the Harry Potter movies, including Gary Oldman and David Thewlis, particularly in this movie. And it has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 86% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us um, a little bit about this particular installment and uh, why you think it's so rated? Uh, so again... I, I think it's more that I don't understand why people love it as much as they do. 
it's the third installment in the Harry Potter series. The first to not be directed by Chris Columbus after he directed the first two. Um, directed by a director that I actually have a lot of respect for. I mean, I like um, Itu Mama Tambien. Um, I really like um, shit. Gravity that he did, I think, is a good movie. Um, like, I think that he's a guy that has a really good visual style to him and definitely is a talented filmmaker. Um, I mean, we we both love Children of Men. Like, we Children yes. of Men's fantastic. And that yep. Roma movie. Roma's good. Yep. Really good. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know that this is his thing. And I people love it, I think, because tonally it's so much different from the first two movies because Chris Columbus was just kind of like filming what was in the books in a very controlled and traditional way. And Quran is trying to inject, I think a little more artistry into the filming of the movies, like to make them a little more aesthetically interesting, but it just is muddled the whole time. Um, Yeah. I mean, it follows Harry and her, Harry Herbione and Ron in their third year. Um, the threat in this year is supposedly Sirius Black, who has um, escaped from the inescapable prison of Azkaban, um, hence the title. Um, so the first part of the movie is people afraid of Sirius Black coming after Harry, um, which Harry finds out is because everyone thinks that Sirius Black was the reason that Voldemort was able to kill his parents. Um, but you find out that it was actually another member of their group, Peter Pettigrew, who's been disguised as Ron's rat for the first two years. And actually, I guess like Ron's entire life, basically. Um, And then Sirius like turns and becomes Harry's, he's Harry's godfather and they have a reconciliation and there's this shit with time travel because Hermione's using this time twister that McGonagall gave her to attend multiple classes. So they're able to go back in time and kind of alter the sequence of events in order to save this hippogriff hippogriff that um Hagrid is raising and save Sirius Black and still foil you know like Pettigrew um I don't really remember this book too well but I know that like one of the problems I have with the movie is that I don't feel like the reconciliation between Harry and um Sirius is earned necessarily it's just like you're my arch enemy. Oh no, now you're like my dad, basically, and that's like the transition. And it happens within the span of what, like three minutes in one scene, basically, much, where yeah. he has this like sea change of entire emotion. Um I don't like Karan's use of like fades and wipes and weird like scene transitions. I think it's kind of off putting. Um it feels like a little too grounded, even though it's still like a movie about magic. Like Quran injects this kind of like modernism into the way that people look and talk and move. That is just, uh, yeah, just kind of weird. Um, I don't know if it's intentional, but there's way too many shots of um, Emma Watson's um, backside in tight jeans, like with her jeans, like riding down below her hips and stuff. And um I was trying not to notice it because I was like, all right, like, don't be a pervert. But then I realized, like, man, this is happening all the time. Like, it's not that I'm seeking out, like, staring at Emma Watson. Like, it's just right in the the screen is here. She has been over in front of you. 
and i don't really understand the logic behind that for like a kid's movie although i guess you are trying to like sell to a more adult audience at this point um well i mean i think if i think he would argue that he was trying to make them more adult but i don't know if that's the way you go about it you know i mean yeah i think it misses the point of that book too which even though like they are like kind of coming of age and becoming more adult i mean so one of the biggest plot points is the whole thing of like hermione using this time twister and constantly being exhausted because she's attending like two two times as many classes but they play up her exhaustion and her irritability a lot more in the book and i think in this one it's just like ron is made to look like an idiot he's like oh poor blimey you weren't there a second ago and that's like five times that happens in the movie and i don't necessarily think that quran like really grasps look i loved the harry potter books when we were all younger and we read them Mm because all of us think read the harry potter series and we're fans of the series and i thought they were good and i i really enjoyed them and same anticipation as a lot of people every time a new one would come out but i don't necessarily think that it captures like the magic of the books in the right way and it's kind of a dumb way to put it but like i don't know then there's some really great scenes in this movie and i we we talked about this offline like i think I love the scene with Harry riding Buckbeak, the hippogriff. I think it's really great CGI. I think it captures this feeling of like both this like epic idea of like this kid riding this like winged whatever creature, but also feels intimate and you kind of feel for him because this is the only time when he's been able to not be super afraid of being like murdered or feel whatever. Like he's not getting made fun of by anybody. He's not getting like picked on he's just able to like be free and be out in the world and like i think it's a really good scene and i think the patronus scene um both sides of it when he's um when he thinks it's his father across the water that like shoots the big um whatever deer patronus stag patronus and then he finds out that it's himself and that's that, that that's a really well filmed scene like i think that actually captures the intent of the book but then a lot of it's just like silly sight gags and jokes and weird like unnecessary camera tricks and it's just not it's just not my cup of tea so i don't know yeah um i prefer every other harry potter movie to this movie and in a lot of people's eyes this is i think the best harry potter movie when you talk to people they they love this movie the most so i don't know yeah it's 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 weird i have noticed that i i don't I actually didn't look at the numbers of the other Harry Potter movies to kind of compare, but um, I, I do know a lot of people love this movie. I thought this was the worst book, if I'm being honest, out of out of the out of all of them. Um, so I was never fond necessarily of the story of this anyway, but the um, the direction the Quran takes it in is um not something I enjoy. Like I, I particularly, I remember we saw this in the theater together, correct? We did. This was an after work movie. Yeah. Um, and, and neither of us were particularly pleased uh, with the movie. Um, I remember my gut reaction because it was my um, bread and butter comment back then. Um, justly, I think, was that why the fuck is it so blue? Um, so that's that's a really good point. And here's the two things. I think at a certain point, this movie settles in and it's just it, it's OK. Like, I still think it's not paced very well, and I think there's some, like, dissonance between 
like scenes but for the most part the things that really bother me about this movie are the opening scene at the dursleys with the ant inflating and flying oh, away god yes like i hate the way that it's filmed and i hate and i understand it's supposed to be a comedic scene but it just there's something about it that just feels completely out of place and i think maybe it's like the father dursley like dropping to his knees and being like oh like as she like floats off in slow motion and then immediately yeah. after i absolutely hate the night bus scene in this movie like it's just it's way too much like abject slapstick fucking i don't know the rasta head like oh you're gonna have to tighten up. Why the long face? Ho, ho, ho. Mm-hmm. And like Harry, like getting up and like, Ooh, and just like flopping back to the ground every time they take a turn. Like, I I hate the physical physicality of the comedy in that scene, and it makes me really annoyed watching it. And then it just puts me in a bad mood for the rest of the movie. So, yeah. But again, like I think, like I think Quran is a fantastic director. I think that you have to have a certain level of like deep appreciation for not just um ron harry and hermione but you know snape and mcgonagall she's not in it all that much um david thulis playing a uh, quirrell quirrell whatever is there lupin um all these all the actors in this movie i think are fantastic i think that they continue to be fantastic throughout the series i think it's amazing that they kept that whole cast by and large together and that you had like these bit actors, like the kid that plays Lucius Malfoy. I mean, he's fantastic in this movie. Mm-hmm. And all the actors do this really yeah, great job. Sure. It's just the sum of the whole is not as great as like some of the other movies. And it, it really doesn't feel, it feels like a series of scenes that have a mild connection. Yeah. You don't feel like it's you watching the entirety of a semester or a year of life in Hogwarts. Like I feel like you do in the other movies. Like it just feels so. Yeah. Dis- yeah i know you're right I, I didn't think about that but you're right it it, do, it doesn't feel like a very uh coherent movie um from from you know as a whole semester or year or whatever um at Har- hogwarts because it's the entire year right they go, right. They go through like a, yeah it, do, it doesn't feel like that um i'm sure there's like some you know exposition like you know um you know scenes that kind of like show that passing of time that i just kind of ignored because it's probably so blue um Look, this guy, I read a lot about this, like how he ended up getting this role and stuff like that. This guy really threw himself into these movies and spent two years on this movie and really threw himself into the universe after having never read the books or watched the first two movies. Um, it's actually um, Guillermo del Toro that ended up, I guess, turning the movie down when he was offered it first. Uh, chastised him for never having been so conceited or something like that. Like, um, by having not read the books and when he did he decided to go for it and really throw himself into every aspect of this production and spent a lot of damn time on this movie i just don't like what he came out with um i i just don't really care for it and i i'll be honest it's like you know as much praise as like people give him for this movie and stuff like that. I I don't, I couldn't really find out like why he didn't return 
Um, except for maybe he spent two years on the fucking movie. Um, that's why Chris Columbus didn't come back is because he said he hadn't ate dinner um, with his kids for two and a half years. Um, uh, so maybe that was it, like spending so much time on it. And he just didn't want to return. Um, I don't know. But um, I, I, I think the people that were making that were behind these movies, I think really uh, it says something that like immediately in four they establish a new look that they go with pretty much throughout the rest of the, rest of the movies. You know, I mean, they make things darker and a little, a little lighter, but I'll be honest, like him making us darker with like some, some of the darker themes coming in and look, some darker themes are coming in, but him making it blue and all that kind of stuff. And like trying to get into like a psychological presentation of these characters a little bit more. That's Goblet of Fire at the end of that is where it happens. So I'm being a nerd for a second. Like that's the turning point of these teenagers' lives is when well, it's not somebody from Hogwarts, like a fellow student dies at the hands of Voldemort. That's where shit gets real dark. So it makes right. sense. And so you notice that in Goblet of Fire, everything's like again kind of bright again. It's filmed completely differently than the Columbus movies, but everything's real bright again suddenly. Um, unlike this movie. And I, I, I think it's like, uh, I get it. I get what he's trying to do, but I, I don't, I don't, I just don't care for the way the movie looks whatsoever. And I think it's, I automatically thought it was the worst book, like when I think back on it. So I was never yeah. really excited for this movie. Maybe so, that's part of the thing. Maybe that's because the, and I don't really remember the book 100%, but maybe that is part of it, that it just doesn't film as well. I mean, I think the Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix are both really good. I don't really yes. remember um, Half-Blood Prince all that well. Yeah, I don't remember that movie that well. But I've only seen it once. Maybe tw- maybe twice. Uh, I've seen it. Um, but actually, I'm I'm considering when Frankie goes back to college in a couple weeks just watching all of them. Yeah. Um, because that would be the first time I would have seen all of them since they were released theatrically. So, I don't know. Yeah. But again, like I think Quran's a great director. I think there's a lot oh, of yeah, absolutely. that and individual pieces are good about this movie. I just think that some of the parts isn't doesn't deserve the praise that the movie gets. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely agree. Um, um Yeah, because shorter men we've talked about on the podcast before, you know, I mean I'm assuming someday maybe Itu Mama will come up like and yeah, some road, somewhere road trip movies or coming of age movies maybe definitely yeah like i can see it on both of them i, I really like that movie yeah um and i know he's disowned this movie but i think great expectations is a bit better than what the critics gave it um Ugh. it's not oh. good don't get me wrong but i think it's a bit better than that from a directorial standpoint not from a story oh it, it looks nice at certain points right. it's just, oh my god such a yeah, and he's he's kind of disowned that movie. It was it was a bad experience for him. Such a bad adaptation of Great Expectations. Wow. <laughs> uh, speaking of bad adaptations, number two on your list is 2003's The Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King, directed by Peter Jackson, starring Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, and blah 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 blah. Um, ninety six. Oh, sorry, 93% from critics um, on Rotten Tomatoes and an 86% from audiences. Um, we talked about Fellowship at the very beginning, or near the beginning of this year, I guess in February, during our 100th episode with um, with, with, with Bledsoe. 
Um, so it was, it was kind of like a, a little meme or a joke for the first few years of this podcast that you never want to talk about Lord of the Rings um, whatsoever, largely because you know how much people love those movies. And um, I, I guess the, the discussion on the 100th episode with Bloodsoe just kind of shot that out of the water for you. Right. That's true. <laughs> so, so we're going to go all in, I guess. Um, and I really hope this is the last time that we talk about Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings because I am so done with these movies and never want to talk about publicly or watch them ever again. So uh, please go ahead and give us your reasons for why this movie is so overrated as a sequel. So I think the biggest disclaimer here that needs to happen because for the past 20 some years of my life, I've gotten shit from people for not enjoying these movies is as a group of friends, like independently of each other, I think we read these books as children and really loved like the books. Like I've always been a huge fan of middle earth and Tolkien's descriptions of the world and the people and the mythology of it. And I just, I really love those books and I had a certain expectation going into the movies. And one of the things that I think I've really fought against, like in my adult life, because I'm trying to be a happier person. It makes me really upset when a movie adaptation of a novel either misses or purposefully changes character motivation or events that wildly alter the tone or ideology of the source material right like does that make sense Mm -hmm. and there's so many times in these movies where i you and i don't agree on this i don't think and i don't really ever argue with it because like these movies make me so tired anyway i think that peter jackson captures what i feel middle earth looks like like the largeness of things like the mountains. Oh, I don't the, disagree with that. I'm fine with that opinion. Yeah. You know, the, the places where people live have a feeling of like age and ruin to them, you know, like these are, this is obviously in a land that's like coming to the end of an age and is in transition, which like, I think that he captures visually really well in these movies. And agreed. It's just, he doesn't get Frodo. He doesn't get Sam. He doesn't understand Aragorn. Yeah. Every minor character is just, and admittedly, like when you read things about like them, him and, um, he doesn't get Gandalf either. I think he gets Gandalf a little more than the other ones because I think Gandalf is more of like a, like a figurehead, not, not, not figurehead is not the right word. Gandalf is more of like an icon in the books. Like, and I think that he treats him accordingly, but you're right. Like, there's things with Gandalf that he doesn't understand either. But it's not even that he doesn't understand it. It's that him and his wife and their writing partner were writing these movies and said to themselves, here's the thing that's supposed to happen, but that's not going to make a cool scene. So instead of trying to, like, find a way to film something meaningful and pay, you know, reverence to the source material, Let's just completely change all the elements of it and make it something else entirely. Can you give me so, an example of of, of that idea that you can think of? I mean, the whole entire ending of the film, okay. in this case, with um, Frodo and Gollum like wrestling, yeah, 
uh, next to the lava pit and Gollum biting off Frodo's finger and then the fucking like tum I it just that that whole scene just plays out so much differently. And in a lot of ways, oh, and like, this is and this is the point entirely of what Tolkien was going right. for. That's that's the thing is that Tolkien is building these almost like spiritual. I don't know, like I don't want to use the hero's journey, but he's like building this like spiritual quest for this these two like men basically that are companions, and all the terrible things they have to go through and their friendship is like that's the other thing too like the frodo casting sam aside and just going into you know um whatever that's called the where where she lives like the crevice yeah, uh-huh. yeah like oh i don't need you sam like you're holding me go, back well yeah go away right, right. leave like, sam or whatever and you know what the worst part of that is it's not him telling sam to leave the worst part of that whole thing and shows another reason it shows me he doesn't get sam sam leaves Right. You know what Sam would never do? Right. Right. And then uh, the ending of this movie is like six hours long. And but it, but it makes it it's a dramatic tension. It's it's to your point when, when I say that, like, you know, Sam would never leave, right? But right. he does it for dramatic tension. And look, I understand. Just that, because you it's know, a cool scene, right? You, you can't have the internal monologue that happens in right. the books where, like, you're an omniscient whatever like third person like right. understanding everything that's happening because you have to show it and explain it but i think you can still show and explain without altering like here's something it's not even in this movie but this is maybe the most egregious thing to me in the entire series is how they handle grima worm tongue and his role with the king of rohan and then his role in this movie with saruman where here's a character that has like a lot of things that he does in the course of the books and you just he's just a dude that stabs Soramon in the back and then dies i mean it's like yeah. like don't even put it in there you know what i mean like you don't have to pay it off like you just kind of waste two characters wow. for no reason other than to have a cool scene with Soramon plummeting off the friggin' roof no, of it, uh, Isengard. And, and look, it, it's a bad scene, even if it's I'm not being a, some kind of purist about the original novel. It's just a bad scene that is there only because he thinks it looks cool. Yeah, and like they shift things too. Like, so the Palantir happens much later, Shelob yeah. happens much later. Yeah. They have to add this. He had, whole, to, he had to fit that fucking battle in the two, man. Like the other thing too that really bothers me is like when Frodo gets captured in um Mordor and Sam has to rescue him, Frodo is like has the shit beat out of him. Like he's yes. it it really lends this power to Frodo's journey up to Mount Doom that he's like endured all these things. Sure, and it's like, and and, your, and how visual is that, right? Right. There's your opportunity to tell this great story mm-hmm. and show this like really impactful moment, and instead you just let Frodo lay there half naked, which weird anyway to mm-hmm. a weird flex, and <laughs> to show like this big like slapstick like melee between, um orcs and fucking goblins like it's just i don't know yeah. 
but like look like there's so many things in this movie that like i look at them and i think like goddamn like that really captures exactly what i think this looks like and that's what makes me and full disclosure i'm an idiot and i watched the four and a half fucking hour version of this movie so <laughs> my whole entire life has been infused with goddamn return of the king yeah, and I, I kept asking you when you were doing that, like, you know, like, oh, well, what's, what was added? What scenes were added? It didn't really sound no. like that many scenes were added. It sounds like shots were added two scenes, and probably length was put on already yeah. too long of a shot. Like, it, a lot of it is dialogue. Like, I went and looked it up um, yesterday just because I was curious. Yeah. A lot of it's, like, dialogue that's added to scenes that fleshes characters out and makes them more important. Um, because obviously, you know, you got um Arwen and you have um what's his name? Uh fucking Agent Smith's elf. Um fuck why can't I remember? El- Elrond. Yeah, Elrond. Yeah. Um they're fleshed out a little more. There's shit like with um Aminas Tirith that's made longer. Like, most of it's just the battle scenes I think are a little longer. It, I don't know. I don't know, man. Well, but look, then, that movie that movie's already too long because I just watched the regular version. Like, God bless you for, I guess, for watching the fucking extended version for this thing. I watched the regular version, and I've told you this so many times, but, like, I'm watching this damn movie, and, like, from a filmmaking standpoint, my biggest problem with it is everything goes on for too long. Like, he spends so long on a shot. And, like, to the point where two of them stood out to me, and I, like, went back and, like, timed how long these shots last. And one is when Gollum bites Frodo's finger off and gets the ring back, and there's an overhead shot of Gollum, and it's an overhead shot through the ring as he's holding the ring up in the air and, like, looking through it, and you can see Gollum's face through the ring. And it's, like, Gollum's all happy-looking. 13 seconds with just yeah. that shot. And like, there's a slight zoom that happens like in that scene. But it's 13 seconds. Like All you're doing is establishing that... Look, you've already established he has the ring. So all you're doing is establishing he's happy that he has the ring. You don't need 13 seconds to do that. And at the end, when Frodo gets on the boat, now it's cut in the middle of it by a two-second shot of all the hobbits standing there looking at Frodo on the boat. But it's a 26-second scene only of Frodo looking back over his shoulder at those hobbits and giving that wet-eyed, doughish smile like he knows something that you don't. And uh, I, I, my least favorite casting in all of these movies is Elijah Wood. Um, and I like Elijah Wood overall as an actor. I've seen him do stuff I really like a lot. I do not like him as Frodo, and I certainly, and it's not all his fault. I hate the way that like they do the makeup on him, and I hate the way that P- Peter Jackson directs him. It's just like everything that he's doing is you see big, big wet eyes and some look that kind of has emotion behind it. Like it, it's a terrible performance to me, terrible, and doesn't capture any of the spirit of Frodo to me whatsoever. Yeah, where, where I generally yeah. like the casting overall. Like, yeah, I think the casting is pretty good. Yeah, I even if I don't necessarily like the performance that mm-hmm. Jackson gets out of the actor, I think that like visually they all kind of match. Right. Um, I also hate the fact that they end the book like they the ending of this movie. So in the extended edition, 
Mordor collapses and there's still 45 minutes left in the movie, right? Oh, I'm sorry. The Eagles rescue Sam and Frodo and there's still like 40 minutes left in this movie. And that scene is interminable where they're like sitting on the fucking like single rock in the volcano that's not covered in lava waiting uh-huh. to get rescued. Uh-huh. 40 minutes from that point to the end of the movie. And it's like like nine of them are slow motion shots of them bouncing on a bed with Frodo yelling in slow motion, Gandalf! Yes. Legolas! You've always, you've always, you've always hated the fucking bed jumping scene. Because it's like... And I get it, I'm not, like... Again, here's this guy that was willing to sacrifice his life and has been through hell and he's, like, bouncing on the bed with his friends and ever the thing oh my god i hate this fucking movie the close-up shots of their faces as they're laughing yeah, at yeah, like yeah. Uh, like gandalf it's like yeah i i asked you to time this but you no one ever has to go back and watch this movie again but man it's like they hold the shot on his face for so long of him going oh, 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 oh. yeah and it's like what the fuck are you laughing at gandalf one is not even funny like just be like happy that this dude is not dead yeah and then none of the shit in the shire getting like ruined by soromon and Wormtongue happens because they right. kill him off at the beginning right. of the movie sure. so when they come back you know what's hilarious they said that they didn't think that the scouring of the shire or whatever that there was enough time to put that into like their movie and it's like maybe if you didn't spend twenty six fucking seconds shooting Frodo's face or however long they shot Gandalf laughing, and you cut those scenes down to what is like reasonable, like just reasonable, like maybe you could have fit it in. But um, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry about the ending of the Skyrim. I mean, it's just it's just silly, you know. And yeah. then it's really long shots of like everybody being like wistful and mm-hmm. I don't know. And then the end of the movie where they're going to get on the boat to go to fucking wherever the fuck Elfland or whatever, um, just goes on forever. And- yes. Yes. Again, I think that when you look at the visual aesthetic of this movie and all three of these movies, I think that Peter Jackson perfectly understands what, middle earth is supposed to look like yes and i think that's the biggest tragedy is like here's a guy that aesthetically understands 100 what he's filming and philosophically doesn't get at all like what makes that journey so great you know god the fact that they're always doing the there and back again shit like it drives me nuts it's like this meta like fourth wall break almost of like hey subtitle of the hobbit like you know how bilbo said we're gonna go there and back again (laughs) no yeah right yeah i mean and what little i've seen of the hobbit movies like like the reason they're so long partly is because they keep having to like fucking set up for the lord of the rings even though you already see them it's also because they got to show you 32 minute food scenes uh anyway anyway yes anyway it's fine you want to do your diatribe about? Yeah, this yeah. I, I I want you to give me five to ten minutes here to kind of like just get this off my goddamn chest and be done with these movies forever, because 
I can hate the way these movies are filmed. I agree with you overall. Like he can't, he, he mostly gets the way Middle Earth looks like. And um, again, maybe I'm like a Tolkien geek or something for like you know caring about this so much, but I do. Um, and the way that he films the movies in terms of these long shots that I hate and, you know, the casting of Frodo, it's like, if you like that, I I'm fine with that. That's a difference in taste. Like, like I might not like it. I actually, I absolutely despise it, but that that's okay. Um, I have a different, like major gripe I've realized with this guy. Like, and it's like, because I told you, it's like, I, I think I was last night, I think I said that I, I don't like thinking about this movie anymore because it like makes me dislike Peter Jackson as a person almost. And I, I couldn't even verbalize why. Like, it's like, why do I have that guttural feeling? Like, it makes me uncomfortable. Anyway, like, I don't like having that feeling about somebody I have no fucking knowledge of. I don't know. Like, it, it makes me uncomfortable to, like, feel that way. But I, but I have been like probing like what it is, and it's it's going to go just a slightly in a roundabout way here to get to like what I really dislike about these movies. Now you're wrong. I didn't read these move these books until I was in my late teens. Mm. I, I was a little older when I read these books. Um, I was I was probably really late teens. I was probably like nineteen or so, eighteen or nineteen. Um, so I was a little older when I read them, and. I'm not an expert on these books at all. Like, I'm not. I did take a class, like, in Tolkien. Like, I talked about these books, but I talked about a lot of Tolkien. It's like short stories and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm not an expert on these things. But I, I do think I've gained a thing or two in terms of knowledge about Tolkien. Like, so, Christopher Tolkien... He gets shit on a lot. Um, uh, this is J.R. Tolkien's son. Like, he gets shit on a lot, like, um, for some of the things he said about these movies, like, to, by fans. Um, and it's not kind what he has said about these movies. Um, he, um, I, I, I wrote it down here. He said Tolkien has become a monster, devoured by his own popularity and absorbed into the absurdity of our time. The chasm between the beauty and seriousness of the work and what it has become has overwhelmed me. The commercialization has reduced the aesthetic and philosophical impact of the creation to nothing. There is only one solution for me to turn my head away. Um, and he goes on to talk about how like the, the films ended up being... Um, uh, for an audience of 15 to 25 year old males um, that were looking for, um, you know, blood and guts and, you know, action and stuff like that. Um, look, he's being, he's always been protective of his father's work and legacy, and you can't fault him for that. Admittedly, he comes off as like cantankerous at best and uh, pompous at worst. Um, but I, I that idea that like the aesthetic and philosophical impact, he's completely right about that, that it's missing from these films. And when Tolkien wrote these books, like for those of you that don't like know and have only seen these movies, he had a whole mythology fleshed out from Middle Earth about gods and demigods and all these other things. And it's in a book called the Cimmerillion. Um, I wouldn't actually recommend reading the Cimmerillion necessarily. Um, 
it's 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 long and tedious and it's basically just a history of the different ages of middle earth um but he knew the backstory and the audience didn't and this kind of uh there's a problem in writing it, right? He'd already like written a lot of stuff in the Silmarillion before he wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And um, I know in a letter that he acknowledges problem that the mythology wouldn't be understood because in as he's writing the Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of acts of providence um, and spiritualism that happen in the Lord of the Rings. And he didn't want providence to be viewed as merely coincidence or happenstance which would be bad writing. Um, and um, he even went on to say that it would be easier to uh, have the Cimmerillion published first before the Lord of the Rings. So he had this problem where it's like, there's all this backstory and he kind of needed a little bit of that backstory to be understood in some way um, in Lord of the Rings. So the way that he did it in these books, uh, he didn't want to, he didn't want to include an abbreviated form of the mythological information because he thought it would bog the books down. He also thought that it would um, um, uh, ruin like the structure of the novels if he started including mythology in them. And he's exactly right in believing that. Um, he also didn't want to be accused of being didactic because his friend C.S. Lewis is one of their biggest disagreements. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, um, was accused of being didactic of putting his Christian morality into the Chronicles of Narnia series, which is very apparent. Like if you read those books, he didn't want to be accused of that because he never wanted to, he, he didn't believe in it. Um, he, he didn't like that Lewis did that. Um, and he was really perturbed at one point when Gandalf the White returns. Um, one critic said that he was cheating, quote unquote, cheating by bringing him back like that without giving like a full explanation. Um, and he said, uh, quote, I wrote it down here. He purposely kept all illusions of the highest matters down to mere hints or kept them in unexplained symbolic forms. Um, so what he's choosing, what he chose to do in the books is rather than appeal to the rational in the reader, um, he chose to appeal to the non-rational, to the more like kind of like emotional, spiritual, maybe even side of readers. And he inserts providence and spiritualism by using description of characters and the characters' experiences. Um, we talked about this maybe a year or so ago briefly. Um of a guy named Rudolf Otto. He wrote a, a book called The Idea of the Holy, and he attempts to define the idea of religious or spirit, uh, like a religious experience, spiritual experience. And he coins this term, the Newman, which is this idea of feeling all fascination and uh, fear beyond proper fear, I think is the way that he says it, in the face of something greater than self. Um, and don't believe me, I'm just so you know i'm not preaching faith here um like i'm an agnostic like you know uh, like overall and i probably live my life even worse than that at times um so but it's like i understand where tolkien's coming from like in his own faith um so when i'm talking about the spiritualism stuff this is real to tolkien and so when, when you think of like the idea of the newman and that feeling of fear and fascination and all and stuff like that it's like think about the old like a uh, dionysian mysteries and um you know, like a whole town seeing something they see, think is a virgin of the, you know, a symbol of the Virgin Mary or something like that. And like, you know, everybody like kind of like acting in like the same way of like bowing and praying and that kind of stuff. It's like this feeling of like being overwhelmed. Um, 
uh, the Bacchanalia is kind of like related to the Dionysian mystery, Dionysian mysteries, and like that kind of stuff. It's full of like drink and dance and sex and murder. Um, like these kind of overwhelming feelings of like uh, of a multitude. Um, so what he does in these books is he injects the idea that there's something greater than just the mundane world of Middle Earth through descriptors. And this is constant throughout these books. Um, so uh, I'm not saying auto-influenced Tolkien in any way either, just to make that clear. Um, Tolkien, Tolkien, I think, had his own understanding of um, religious experience. But this idea of the, the numinous does show up throughout the entirety of three books. And it happens when Frodo looks in Gladriel's mirror. In fact, like Tolkien uses the words all fear and desire as descriptors when that scene happens. Um, and purposely, I've seen the drafts of Fellowship of the Ring. He purposely ends up changing words to include those words in. Um, it happens when Gandalf the White appears. It happens when Tom Bombadil appears. Um, you know, it happens throughout. It particularly happens, and the reason I'm talking about this right now, is it particularly happens when Sam fights Shelob in this movie. Um, and what in the book, um, Shelob's closing in for the death blow, and, quote, a thought came to Sam as if a voice had spoken. He grabs the vial of Gladriel that's around his neck, whispers her name, and then he, quote, heard voices far off but clear. Then he starts speaking in Elvish, which he does not know, that language, and starts praying to a god that he doesn't understand. Um, and then after that, he, um, he uh, quote, and staggered to his feet, and was Samwise the Hobbit, Hamfast's son, again. Um, he attacks Shelob, quote, reeling like a drunken man. So if you're reading this, like, you know, descriptors are one thing. This is something that logically makes no sense in the book. Like, it just comes out of nowhere. It is a true spiritual experience. One of the only ones of the book, like, you know, if any of these three books. Um, so it's like... First, it's like he's 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 practicing xenoglossy, like the idea of speaking in tongues, um, which is another example of like this idea of the Newman, right? Like we see it in what is it, Pentecostal churches, Frank? The, the, that that's happens. Uh -huh. um, oh, yeah. And so it's like this idea of speaking in tongues, and then it's like this idea he was Samwise again. The idea is he was someone else briefly for a moment. Um, he had, he had left being Samwise. He had connected with something greater. Um, the word real, which Tolkien was an expert in language, um, he, I can't remember. It's like he knew something ridiculous, like 50-some different languages or something like that, I think, um, um, including tons of dead languages. He's an expert in language and etymology. Um, real has two meanings, one to kind of like stagger violently and the other one to feel like uh, bewildered. Um, I think he's using both in this sense, again, tying into this like coming off the spiritual experience. Um um, in fact, like there's something called the Dionysian Gate. I remember years ago when I was reading, um, which is like a drunken stagger. Um, so yeah, if you ever want to um, sound smart, like when you're drunk, um, so you have a Dionysian Gate. Um, so anyway, Lord of the Rings is filled with these glimpses of something higher, something more than the mundane world. Um, one of his friends, and I'll end with this, like before I make my final point. One of his friends um, wrote to him that uh, he was uh, somebody who was not of faith. 
wrote to him that uh, Tolkien had created a world in which some sort of faith seems to be everywhere without an invisible source, like light from an invisible lamp. And it's probably one of the most perfect descriptions I've heard of the feeling behind these books if you're reading them as an adult. Okay. Um, and here's my point. Did you know what's not in these movies whatsoever? But any kind of fucking feeling like that at all in these books, like that, that I'm describing here, there is no concept of anything beyond the characters and their specific journey, which, okay. But all he includes is staged manipulations of feelings in every single scene. Right. I feel nothing watching these movies. I feel something reading Tolkien's books. And it's not the difference between seeing something on the screen or reading something in print, because I'll, I'll tell you, I'm more moved by movies than I usually am or ever, ever in books. But like the feeling that I get reading the books, they mean something to me. These movies, as I'm watching them, I feel manipulated because it's only you're supposed to feel sad at this point, or you're supposed to feel joy at this point, or you're supposed to feel like tension at this point, And it's manipulated way too long, way too overtly through every single shot. What Jackson, I think, has done, and it's like, I think as a child, he read these books. And this is the point that, like, the difference I wanted to make between reading them when I was older more and reading them when I was younger. When he read these things, he read them as sword and sorcery books. And he wrote them as he imagined them at the time, making changes as he wanted to along the way, it seems. Um, but he wrote them from the perspective of a child. He did not write them necessarily from the perspective of an adult rereading them. And I have no idea what Peter Jackson's research is in the Tolkien or anything like that, or if he like, you know, I'm assuming he had to reread them as an adult. So I think that him making this movie, he made it the way that he imagined it as a child. And I think part of that imagination is on point in the way the world looks. I think you're correct. I think that from a filmmaking standpoint, they're not very good. I'm fine with disagreeing with people on that. Um, it's his prerogative to make the movie that he wants to make. He's the director. But I think as adaptations of his work, um, they're without merit. Mm. And I would go as far as to say that they are intellectually dishonest and superficial when you're reading the material as an adult as opposed to a child because he either does not understand or he ignores the underpinning of faith and philosophy that Tolkien was infusing into these books purposefully for people. They're juvenile adaptations. Sure. Um, as opposed to an well-read adults adaptation. Again, that's fine. He can make that movie. He's the director. But fuck him and fuck his movies. And I never want to talk about this dude in the podcast ever again. Okay. I mean, I'm 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 done with it at this point. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you hit it on the head by saying that. <sighs> He just made a really overwrought sword and sorcery movie, and that's just what it boils down to, and that's not what makes those books great. I mean, and listen, 
I love David Eddings. I love Ari Salvatore. I love Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, Brian Sanderson, like all these people that write very traditional sword and sorcery novels. And I love reading that stuff, but that's not, not the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And that's why it's really difficult to watch these movies. So, so we good. We can move on from. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me, let me, let me cool down here for a second. (laughs) I got more heated than I thought. Um, internally. Um, Oh, Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, I'm just going to let you carry a load on this one. I'll try it if I need to. Number one on your list is 2004 Spider-Man 2, directed by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, Stafford Molina, James Franco, Rosemary Harris. Has a 93% from critics and an 82% from audiences. This is another one that we saw in the theater together um, twice, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, tell us about this movie, Frank, and, um, why it's the, your most overrated sequel. Um, so where I'm able to find like something positive to pull out all the other movies on this list, uh, this movie is fucking trash. Um, the sequel to what's Spider-Man one, 2003, 2004, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two thousand. Um, the first the, one. Yeah, the first Spider-Man movie. Uh, yeah, it's like two thousand or two thousand one or something like that. Yeah. Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie. Um, the sequel involves uh, Spider-Man having like a crisis of conscience about his powers, where they start to um go out on him because he feels like he can't balance his personal life and his life as a superhero and. Basically, the Peter Parker is a giant motherfucking douchebag the entire time who can't make a decision and can't be an adult about anything. I, there's no good characters in this movie. Actually, that's false. Alfred Molina's portrayal of Doc Ock is really good yeah. in this movie. And in a different movie with different dialogue and direction would have probably been... Hey, yes, I agree. Sure, that pretty pretty amazing because he captures he captures the egotism and pathos inside this guy really well Mm -hmm. but it's so so first of all this movie is a christ analogy for spider-man basically it's like this man that sacrifices everything without taking anything in return for all the people and why shouldn't he have the things that he wants to, but ultimately like he's too good to let that happen. So talk about juvenile too. Like, you know, it's like, you can't, you can't do a sacrifice story without it being about like a Christ analogy. Like how many, how many sacrifice stories have we seen in the past 15 years now with superhero right. movies with that? Oh, and it hasn't been Christ analogies like, with any movie. I don't know. Sure. But, sure. You got to have Peter Parker like crucified by Doc Ock basically. Um, or through Doc Ock's machinations and then passed over the heads of the loving people who will stand up and not let Spider-Man get killed by Dr. Octopus. Um, abysmal performances, though, by and large, by everyone in this movie. Um, Kirsten Dunst is unlikable for the most part. 
Um, James Franco is completely like manish, histrionic, and over the top and unbelievable. Um, the scenes are so poorly written and paced that nothing ever feels truly connected and it feels so long like the entire movie they introduce characters for no reason and plot points for no reason like the whole mary jane is possibly going to marry jameson's son thing it's just like why is it there like if that's what you want to tell is her moving away from peter just have her drift away from peter kind of because he's not around don't have her like just agree to marry some dude that she's been dating for like two months there's the weird subplot of the skinny russian neighbor that's in love with peter Uh but like is just there for no reason and doesn't go anywhere well that goes somewhere if i remember from last year when we talked about three which also made one of your worst sub lists um doesn't it go somewhere there where like he like ends up breaking her heart or something he's just an asshole to her he just that's yeah he, he just manipulates her to get what he wants so and then leaves her but i mean like let's, let's quickly just jump back though to to the dunst james jameson's son relationship real quick it leads to two dreadful scenes that you and i have talked about yeah one is when peter is like peter and her are walking down the street and she tells peter like who's maybe subtly and his like I'll say autistic kind of way. Okay, there you go. Yes, and it's also this kind of way that like he's trying to hit on her. I think still, and she's like, "Peter, I'm getting married." And his response is, "I've always imagined you getting married on a hilltop." Right. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense for any rational human being to ha- be. That's the response to her forcefully saying, "Peter, I'm getting married." Um, yes, you're right. It makes him look like he doesn't understand any kind of social cue whatsoever. It's awkward. It's a awkward fucking scene and awkward writing. Second, and you brought this up um to me, is it also leads to the scene that subplot where she kisses Jameson's son upside down on the couch. Yeah. So let explain me ex- yeah. why that's so bad, like why it's so awkward. So it's a callback to the scene in the first movie where um, Peter has rescued her for some thugs um, and is hanging upside down in the rain and she pulls his mask up slightly to his nose where she kisses him upside down. So she's agreed to be married to this dude and she's living with him, I guess. And decides that this is how she's going to determine whether or not she truly has feelings for him because she's going to see if she can get off in the same way as she got off when she kissed spider-man yes by kissing him upside down on the couch which it doesn't work because she's not like into it in the same way and that's basically like the end of their relationship because she couldn't feel the same thing she felt when she was making out with a stranger in the rain i don't know right right but it's just so shallow yeah and the whole movie is so tone deaf and like the first movie is not perfect but the first movie at least is a good encapsulation of what makes spider-man an interesting character it's a decent origin story it's got a good sense of humor about it you know it's got the menace of the green goblin um in addition to like spider-man like learning how to use his powers and learning how to save people and 
it sets up the eventual rift between him and his best friend. Like all that stuff is fine in the first movie. And I think both of us really enjoyed the first movie. And again, it was like my point with X-Men, like so starved for something. Yeah. Cause Spider-Man is one, another one of the characters that I read pretty religiously throughout most of my life. And so I love Spider-Man. And so it was really nice to see a big budget Hollywood movie that took Spider-Man seriously. And it's like, this is just, I don't know, man, like Sam, Sam Raimi making an Evil Dead movie over the corpse of like Spider Man, I, I guess. I don't know. Well, shit. I mean, he does that with the him turning into Doc Ock. Like he like uses his. Yeah, it's all the the Evil Dead cam like yeah. zooming in and whatever. Um, and you know what? If if that would have been an a scene in the movie, but the movie would have just been watchable overall, like I right. wouldn't care. Like that sure. wouldn't bother me. Like I. I love Sam. Sam Raimi was one of my favorite directors for most of my young life. Like I love the Evil Dead movies. I think Crime Wave is a decent movie. Um, I think The Gift is a good movie. Like that's mm-hmm. been on a list before. Right. And so Spider Man, the first Spider Man when it came out, I was like, right, like this is this is awesome. This is like what a superhero movie could be. And then this the sequel is just. I don't know, man. Shit, you put the gift, I think, on the a top movie of a year list. Yeah, I really enjoy that movie a lot. Mm. I think it's I think it's I think it's well acted. I think it's restrained. I think it's got heart to it and it tells a really good story. And it's like I don't know. It's like every so okay, so here's another egregious scene about this fucking movie. There's so plenty. Peter Peter is sitting at dinner with Aunt May, and Aunt May's like talking him up about something. <laughs> And Peter, the fucking, I I feel bad that I called him autistic because he's not autistic because that's insulting to people that have actual autism. Peter Parker as a character in this movie is just written as someone who has no idea how to interact with other human beings in a meaningful way and is also an idiot. And so Aunt May is talking to him. Peter's like, hey, I need to tell you something. The night that that Uncle Ben died, I could have stopped the guy that killed him, but I didn't do it. I just let it happen. I was mad, and that's why he's dead. He's dead because of me. And she stands up and just goes upstairs. Like there's no interaction. There's nothing. She just leaves him sitting at the table. And then, like two scenes later, she's like, "Oh, you know, I was thinking about what you said, and I still love you, and it's not your fault, and you know everything's fine. But the city needs Spider Man." So it's like what should have been a major plot point in this movie, uh-huh. which should have been Aunt May finding out that Peter is Spider-Man and learning that it's his fault that Uncle Ben died and like basically pushing him to because in essence, it should be, I don't know. They should have gone a whole uh, complete different direction with everything, but like make him abandoned by his friends and family so that he's at his low point. And that way, when he rises back up, it's through his own strength. You know, it's through him, uh-huh. like, regaining his confidence in himself. And it makes it meaningful. And instead, it's just, like, there's no consequence to anything. Like, everything that happens, like, Peter has lunch with Mary Jane once, and she doesn't want to be with her fucking fiance anymore. Right. Sure. And then that's the end of it. And then they're <laughs> just together, you know? Right. And it's, like, the change in this in the third movie with the whole venom subplot is just as egregious where it's yes. like oh you know what like i'm just an asshole now i'm just a douchebag yeah and in yeah, this th- movie it's like i'm a basically a huge man child with no 
I don't know, like reasonable adult traits to my. Yeah, well, 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 right. I mean, like, um, I think it, I think it might have been my wife said something like, "But she normally doesn't say something like that." But I think she said something that's like, "Well, yeah, it's like you know, it's, it's written for millennials or something like that." But um, like, I can see that point. But um, first of all, I want to say like I didn't take your use of like calling him autistic as pejorative, like. I think he really does destroy, display the traits of someone who has autism, which is on the spectrum. Like, I work with people on the spectrum all the time in terms of students. Like, he definitely displays traits like that. He blurts, like, things that, like, seem non, like non sequiturs, but in his mind connect in some way to what is going on. Um, usually his feelings as opposed to his logic sometimes and vice versa his logic as opposed to his feelings um he doesn't take social cues whatsoever like i mean so there are traits here in the writing of this character that is someone that is on the spectrum um so i I, and i and i know you well enough not to take that pejoratively so it's like i don't think you need to worry about that and i think you can be i think kind of confident in saying me i can be kind of confident saying that you're right um that that line about i always imagine you getting married on the hilltop is definitely something that someone on the spectrum would say um in response to a harsh condemnation and refusal of peter i'm getting married to somebody else you and i talked about this and tried to suss out like what does that mean exactly like because i don't think that as the viewer you're supposed to think man what an awkward weirdo peter is i think you're supposed to think like peter's such a romantic that just can't get the words out in the right way you know what right. i mean right and it's like well and then the, the, because the, the follow-up to that so, so, so she says that he says i always imagine gillen getting married on a hilltop her response is just as fucking weird and awkward which is like to, to who? Hers, right and he's like i never thought about that <laughs> um it's so weird it's just such a weird thing like so what what sorry what you were saying like you you think it's supposed to make him romantic right because he's saying i I think the intent of that line is meant to be i i picture you having a fairy tale wedding like you're in the country on this hilltop with nature and you're beautiful and that's how i picture it not just some like you know fly by night wedding to a guy who you've been dating for two months right like that's the thing like you're not he's he's basically saying you're not this like socialite whatever debutante that's getting married in high society that you're this beautiful woman yeah that deserves this fairy tale wedding so i think that's the point is him like showing that romanticism but not knowing how to express it because Okay, so let's turn this to a slightly different conversation real quick about this movie. And so maybe that is the way... You're probably exactly right. I, I think that's a, that's a valid way, uh, way of what it's supposed to look like. Um, it doesn't get there because of Tobey Maguire, right? Let's, let's just talk about this motherfucker for a minute, all right? Because if I have a major gripe of rewatching this movie is that in the first movie which I have not watched since we saw it in the theater, okay? Maybe I rewatched it once, like, on television or something, parts of it. So I don't know what I think about that first movie anymore, but 
to me in my mind it works because he's just getting his powers so he can be awkward and kind of doofusy he's also a college he's also a high school student he's also a high school student right it's like by the second movie that shit don't play anymore to me but mcguire's still acting the exact same way and it's because i don't think there's any other way he can act i think the dude's a bad fucking actor i don't agree with that i i have seen toby mcguire in plenty of things what give it to me in come to daddy he's really good like that's a really good performance his number one i'm always going to be probably more positive about mcguire than you because i really think that um i really appreciate him as a producer um and a lover of like horror films that's elijah wood oh right oh then yeah Toby mcguire sucks yeah <laughs> I always get them confused. <laughs> Toby Maguire. Oh, well, then I should have I should have defended Elijah Wood in his wet eyes when you were making fun of him. And um, but I but I said that I actually have seen Elijah Wood do some really good stuff that I really like. So, like yeah, I I'm get looking. it. It was just to me. It was just that Frodo role. He wasn't right for it. You know that sometimes least... I can't even remember Toby Maguire's name. Like, I'll sit there and try and think really hard about what that person's name is, and all I can think is Elijah Wood. Like, to me, they don't exist separate from each other. Taylor McGuire's in your fucking white person movie that you like so much. Um, Ice Storm. I do like that movie a lot. I know you do. And you know what he plays in that? Same fucking character. A Hobbit? No! Toby McGuire! Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a stroke <laughs> i don't know i can't i can't separate him in my head he's in cider house rules cider house rules is fine that with is... the devil is fine he's in the ice storm too though right uh yeah okay i i see i can't tell the ice storm and um cider house rules apart from one another to some degree in my mind just from the name standpoint and how i feel about those movies there ain't really that much different at least, like philosophically. Um, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm never gonna know those two people as separate people. Like to me, they're always the same person. That's 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 real weird. Um, well, you know, because um, I just did it again in my head. I was like, so wait, who are we talking about right now? <laughs> Toby McGuire. Right. Okay. Toby McGuire with his look and look. Just so everybody knows, because I don't. Most people that are listening that don't know us. Like we're 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 bigger guys. So when I say this, like I'm not saying this to shame whatsoever. Like I've been overweight like my entire adult life, really. Tony McGuire has a bit of a muffin top in this movie. Did you notice that when like long shots when he's walking down the street? Uh, no, that's weird. He does. Like there's just like this like belly that's like sticking over his jeans i don't know if the jeans are skinny or what like i don't pay attention to those things i'm sorry but i just noticed that it's like in terms of his shape it's not very flattering and it's not the same shape that he has as spider-man and that cgi at all um it's weird 
this is a weird fucking movie. And if you go back and really like intently look at this movie and like think it through, like all the way through, like the logic of the dialogue, you Toby McGuire's acting in this is fucking atrocious. It's really bad. Like it makes no sense to me. It's not human. It's not. (laughs) It is not at all. And Kirsten Dunst feels like she has been. And I'm saying this for comedy's sake. It feels like she's been injected with like some sort of heroin and been forced to do this movie. Like she feels dreary and sleepy the entire time. And like, she doesn't want to be there. And from what I have learned about Tobey Maguire's, like, some of the stuff in his personal life, because realize Tobey Maguire, besides, I think, a voiceover, has not done anything since Spider-Man 3. Um, maybe that's the case, because apparently he's a huge fucking dickhead. Mm. Um, so maybe that's what it is. Because there's no chemistry between those two. That final scene between them is one of the most awkward scenes I've ever seen in terms of chemistry on screen yeah it's pretty bad i don't know i want to punch toby like seriously i hate toby mcguire's face like i there's very few people i would ever say that about in my life it's like i just hate his face think about his face right now friend what's the feeling that you have i'm trying to remember which one he is the one in spider-man I just, I don't know. It's just very, um, see, I don't think of him as punchable. I think of him as like, he's just a cypher. Like there's nothing to him. Like he's not even a real person. He's just a thing that kind of knows what a person sounds like and does. And like sometimes words come out and sometimes the words, I don't know. I swear to God, he doesn't seem human in the whole movie. Like he's very... And I, again, like, that's why I'm, I don't want to say autistic because it's not autism. It's robotic, roboticism, or I don't know. I don't know. I hate him, but I don't want to punch him. I just don't ever want to watch these movies again. I'm never going back to watch the first one to see what I think of it. There's a movie I like. Sure. Nah, I, I, I've given up on the idea of going back and watch that. But hey, you'll get to see him at the end of this year, though, because him and Garfield are going to be in the um, in the new Spider-Man with Tom Holland. Oh, I was thinking like the I Hate Mondays Garfield. <laughs> Andrew Garfield, right? Yes. Right, not yes. not Garfield cat. Right. Um, Lasagna. Right. You got you. You have to forgive me because I literally four and a half hours yesterday watching fucking Lord of the Rings. And uh, oh, just so to to defend you, I've actually seen you make this mistake before. Oh, constantly. I yeah. I I'm telling you, and this is this sounds really dumb. I just didn't think you would make it in the podcast, but I I've seen you make this mistake before. But I was sitting on the couch the other day, (laughs) and I had just watched not the other day. This was like last week. I just watched Spider Man two, and it was over. And I was like, which one is that? What's the other one's name? And all I could think was Elijah Wood, and I was like, fuck, what's this guy's name in this movie? And I wouldn't let myself go back and research it, but I had to eventually go back and look because for the life of me, I could not remember what the man's name was. 
I, I seriously, when you said come with daddy a little while ago, I was like, well, maybe he had a small role in that. And I don't, I don't, because I never ended up watching it. So maybe he had a small role in that. And like, I, I just didn't know. No, it. Like, no, it's all And then it's, and then it's like, you know, production horror movies. I was, oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that's how little that the, what, what to- Toby Maguire means to me. I almost asked you what his name was. I remember though. Yeah. It's how little he means to me. Um, dreadful, dreadful shit. I don't think he's a good Peter Parker either. Well, he's too old. I mean, like, I, to me, like, for the for, honestly, for the first movie, when you think about it, he's too old. Like, somebody actually on screen, like, I got an article because um of this fucking podcast. Like, I get so many. Oh, my feet's fucked now. My feet is fucked from these mo- all these movies, Frank. Um, but I got this article from Screen Rant, like, that popped up that I looked at. It was like if Tobey Maguire, like here's like him age appropriate as Peter Parker. And it was like a bunch of like basically like shots from like movies and TV shows when he was younger and like superimposing or like digitizing like him as as a Spider-Man. It's fucking perfect. But like this dude was like fucking like 25 or something like that or 26 when he took took on as like the high schooler. Um, So he's like older than that, I think, like by the time he's in this movie. He's too old. And he's too doughy. Mm. And he's too I like, wooden. I like Andrew Garfield as um, Peter Parker. I don't particularly like those two movies. Um, I think they have a lot of problems too, but I like them better than this movie and Spider-Man 3. Uh, agreed. I like them better as movies because they're getting closer to hitting the mark. The only thing I don't like about the Garfield, like I like, I'm fine with his performance as it is written. I don't like kind of like the likable jockish Peter Parker as a, as a, as a concept. Right, that makes sense. Like, but um, I mean, Tom that, Holland is perfect to me. Right. Like, I mean, it's been it's the most perfect casting of Peter Parker so far. The, he's a mathlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a child basically. Right. But it's like he's not like he keeps himself like still like fit, obviously, you know, and like all that kind of stuff. Like, it, it makes sense. It makes perfect right. sense. Like so, um, yeah. So, but yeah, Toby Maguire like just makes no sense to me as as, as Spider Man in in hindsight now. So I think your point at the beginning of this podcast was that like the point that you were making is that people were so starved for these movies. Is that the point you were making? Well, also I think that. And I said this during the Batman, the Nolan podcast, like, I don't expect everyone to have the same level of, like, unwieldy knowledge of the comic book universe for these characters that I do. So, like, I'll forgive some things. I mean, because I could argue about every single MCU movie, like, taking liberties and not being true to the actual, like, source material. But what the fuck ever? Because every comic book series reinvents itself like every decade anyway. So fuck it. Like, that's fine. Whereas I think that Brian Singer at least sort of understands the purpose of the X-Men. I don't think I don't think Savini or um, Maguire or anyone involved in these movies really understands who Spider-Man is. And that's why, like, okay, so in, um, uh, fuck, what's the first Spider-Man movie? Homecoming, right? Is that right? Yeah. 
Homecoming, Far From Home, and whatever. Yes, the yeah, you're right called. then. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. There's a scene where he has to hold two side, two halves of a ship together mm-hmm. because he fucked up and over- underestimated the vulture, and the vulture has fucking destroyed this thing, and now he's, yes. like, holding it together. And it's yeah. almost entirely the same as Toby fucking Toby Maguire. Toby Maguire, Toby Maguire shooting out his webs and like trying to stop the subway in this movie. Right. But it's like the difference between them is night and day because it's not this like weepy overwrought. Oh my God. He's so selfless for sacrificing himself. It's like, no, you idiot. Like this is why you should have just waited for Iron Man to get there anyway. And not that there was an Iron Man and fucking Spider-Man too. Right, yeah. But the, look, and the way that the character is like developed in those movies is so much better than right. Like because, these movies, like, because you know, Peter, Peter is full of himself and legitimately thinks that he, it's his job to stop this from happening, and he's right. But he also like puts himself in unnecessary danger as a result, and so Tony's all pissed off at him. And it just, it's a really good scene. It builds a dynamic between two characters and. I don't know, like, I like his quippiness, like, um, Maguire's Spider-Man is never really particularly witty, like, he makes jokes once in a while, but it, like, always falls flat, and it's not, like, right, like, dad jokes, almost, which is sort of, like, what Peter Parker is, is he's, like, groany, like, puns or whatever, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to talk about this movie ever again. All right, so I just got two pieces of trivia for you real quick before we go. Okay. Um particularly about Spider-Man just in general. So one is that uh, the Saturn Awards, um, uh, you know, the science fiction fantasy horror. Award, uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Um, Cave, Cave McGuire, best actor for this movie. Yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. Second, did you know that John Francis Daly, um, that, uh, uh, played, uh, the, the, the Sam Weir, uh-huh. did, did the story for Homecoming? Yeah, I think I did know that. Huh. That's what he does now, right? Is he just writes? Uh, yeah, he um he wrote uh party party up or whatever, right? Isn't he one of the writers for that? I, I oh I don't know I don't know what that is. I don't see that listed here. What's um, no? What's the name of that show? You you and fucking Chuck watched it. Party, party down. down. Oh, party whatever. down. I, oh, no, I got no, the I I got the direction wrong. Nah, uh, I don't, uh, did he write for that? Um, I thought it was him and um Martin Starr like wrote nah, it or something. No, nah. um, no, nah. he um he's actually done more film than anything. Um, he wrote Harper Bosses. Um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too. Um, he directed. That vacation movie that um, I, I will never watch with Ed Helms, which I think is the reboot of, um, or maybe the no, it's the it's the grown Rusty. That's what it is, right? Vacation with yeah, Ed Helms. Right. It's the it's, it's Rusty as an adult, like taking his family on vacation. Game night. Um, I don't know what that is. Um, Jason Bateman's apparently in. I'm sure it's like fantastic of a feature film. Um, and then he's directing something called. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons movie of some sort with yeah. Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez, but um, um, but yeah, he has a story by and uh, writing credit on Homecoming, which is interesting. Um, 
just a guy that we will never talk about on this podcast ever. Um, so I thought it was interesting. Maybe at some point we could do like a Freaks and Geeks um, retrospective and appreciation hmm. episode. Sure. I wouldn't mind watching it again at some point, like and, and doing that. Um, I, I, I would, I would particularly like to hear you fantasy book. Um, season two. Yeah, yeah. Um, think about it in the fantasy book. Um. All right. I fucking I I I fucking hate. I, I hate those first like one and two on your list. I fucking hated Spider Man two watching it. Um I was more personally I'm more personally offended by the Lord of the Rings movies, but I think I described that already. But uh, God I hated Spider Man two. It's so bad. The other three movies is like ugh. But Spider Man two is so bad. I that's the one I I told you before we started. I don't that's the one I don't understand. I don't understand any of it. Like, I read the positive criticism of it. Like, you know, like what people like about it. I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. Like, every positive thing I see, I'm like, really? Like, where do you see that? Like, it I makes don't no sense it. to me. None. But, you know, and again, so this is my point. And like, we can just end it because yeah. we've been talking for a minute. But I think that people don't understand. I, I don't know. I, mean, I think that people have a different conception of what makes superheroes great from what I think. Uh-huh. And I I don't know if that's just because I told you we were, we were talking about Suicide Squad, the um, reboot or sequel, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That just came out on. Um, we both watched this weekend right. and both of us enjoyed. And sure. I was reading reaction online where people were saying how they didn't feel like it was as good as the original Suicide Squad. Which is a piece of fucking shit. It's bad. It's like, I just think that some people. I think that for some people, what Spider-Man 2 represents is exactly what they think of as a superhero movie because they don't have an inherent appreciation for what superheroes are. And I think that if like you're okay with there not being any real. That you don't expect it to have anything good in it. So you can just sit there and enjoy the visuals. Which I don't even understand because I don't think this movie has very good special effects. But maybe I get like why people liked it. Like, oh, haha, it's got some comedy and it's got some romance and there's a couple cool fight scenes and whatever. But I just think it misses the point of what makes like Spider Man a good character. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel the same way about like a lot of those movies before. Right. Because at least the MCU cares about continuity. And cares about developing a story over a long period of time. And that's why comics are amazing. Is because you can read it for years. And something that happened in issue like 150 matters in issue 210. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And if you're a consistent like consumer of that stuff. Then you know those things. And it's the same in the MCU. And it's like in Spider-Man 2. It's like what. Let's just shit on his relationship with Aunt May. Because what does it matter? Because it's just a superhero movie. Like, let's fuck yeah. up his... Right. Like, let's fuck up the entire story with um, um, Harry Osborne and make it, like, just this melodramatic slosh just to have a scene happen. Because what the fuck does it matter? And it's like, it does matter. And I don't think that anyone in that movie 
cared about the actual story of spider-man and like making a coherent trilogy they just wanted to have scenes that people could pop to so yes. fuck them. that's much it like, i'm done much like peter jackson he was looking for pops um in that movie um yeah um cheap pops at that like both of them all right so I'm I'm glad to be done. I seriously am glad to be done this. Like I, I do not like I, I doing it two weeks in a row was a bit much like on me. Um I'm I'm glad to get back to our next podcast, which our next official top five podcast will be in two weeks or no three weeks. Um since we have five weeks in um August, but um, we'll be coming back with the top five horror movies of 1997, um, which is a good list. Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear you like ex- explain why you like those movies. Um, I liked all of them to one degree or another. So I'm, inter- I'm, I'm and then September we are getting into like what I'm calling the month of crime, kind of like we're getting into the top five Elmore Leonard adaptations. The next top five crime films of the 70s, which was the original, was one of the more popular episodes. Um, so we're going to go kind of into crime for a month um, with a focus on Elmore Leonard and the 70s, respectively. And then top five horror movies in 1998. Uh, we might do a watch along or a second watch or something in the next couple of weeks um, related to 97 horror um, that we're discussing. Um, just to kind of fill in a gap there so we're not just like leaving two weeks open um but yeah so you might see something pop up as always we are doing the quick cage um every week until um the end of this motherfucker's Time. filmography no it's it's got an end date and it's late in late november at this point um until he makes new movies but <clears throat> We're getting close. Um, Frank conned me into watching me and uh, friend of the podcast, uh, friend of the Wilmaker. podcast, Ryan Wellmaker. Uh, fuck you, Frank. You're always condescending when you say it. That guy's um, funny. Um, and uh, <laughs> no, it's just funny to kind of pretend you're more condescending than you are. Um, yeah, we watched that last night, and it's a piece of shit spoiler um so i'll be interested to hear frank explain that movie to everybody and um then what in another well for roughly 10 days like we are going to be doing a new podcast which will not be on this channel but i'll plug it um as much as possible on the podcast and instagram and facebook um but we are doing a podcast with Orion Wellmaker and our friend Mike Bledsoe called The Best 30 Minutes, um, where we will be talking about different topics throughout our lives and our different perspectives on them. Um, a lot of them more pop culturally, culturally um, in nature. But the first episode will be about uh, Star Wars in the 1990s and how that franchise continued beyond the movies in the 90s in terms of the expanded universe and video games and comics and, you know, toys and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'll remind everybody of that here in another week or two. 
Um, other than that, Frank, you have any final thoughts on overrated sequels of all time? No, nah, I'm glad it's over with. Yes. Same. Um, hopefully I can be a bit more positive. Oh, I actually have one more that it was an honorable mention. Mm. Um, I forgot about it until you brought up, uh, John Francis Daly. Um, I think Christmas Vacation is super overrated. Hmm. I don't think Christmas Vacation is as good as the other vacation movies. Which, which one's the, which is the best vacation movie? The first vacation. Yeah. But I actually I actually enjoy European vacation yeah, more than Christmas. Okay, vacation. okay, thank you. All right, I was gonna say like Europeans to me, Europeans the best one. And and then that's it, I then, it, then to me it's kind of a toss-up. Look, there's there I think there's higher highs in Christmas vacation, but first vacation's a better movie overall. I think I would say Yeah, it didn't make the list because I watched it last Christmas and still like I thought it was still a fine movie and it still made me laugh and the stuff with like Julia Louis Dreyfus and her husband next door, like, is really funny. But Randy I just don't. Qua- I like Randy Quaid too. Yeah, I just don't see. I'm not as huge a fan of that. Like, I think yeah. that he's it's just too over the top, and it's like, I it, it's it's the, it's the shit, right? You don't like the shit. No, nah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that's funny. Like it, <gasps> it's my same problem with Step Brothers. Kind of is that I don't feel like it's got a. It's too unrealistic, maybe. It's it's too much of like I don't know. It's hard to explain. Anyway. I've so I've, come, I've come not to I've come to like Chevy Chase much less as I've gotten older. Well, right, because you hear all the stuff about him. It's not it's person. not just that. It's like I go back and look at his performances and I'm like, eh. Um he, I I think he feels like a bully in um everything he does like if you watch him in saturday night live and you watch him like doing stand-up and stuff he feels like he's a bully to me yeah do you do you know about the real quick do you know about the new fletch movie like reboot that's coming out what did i say when you brought this up before i don't did it know. did, did we did, was it you that i had this conversation with i don't remember i don't remember us having this conversation but i drank so well i'm, I'm gonna say this again then or okay. maybe for the first time who gives a fuck about Fletch in 2021? Nobody gave a fuck about Fletch in 1983. There's just some goddamn there, 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 there are people that gave a fuck about Fletch yeah. right, back then. And there's like four people, some fucking nerd-ass directors and writers who think that people care about that reboot. Nobody gives a shit. It's like the Starsky and Hutch fucking reboot. Like, nobody cared about that shit. You ain't gonna get nobody to come watch some goddamn Fletch in the theater, so fuck some Fletch. Dumb. That's how I feel about it. I'm feeling personally attacked right now. It's because I'm being personally attacked right now. Because <laughs> I'm those. I'm one of those four people. I think. I just think it could be done much better than what it was done in the '80s. And I think John Hamm is a really good choice to try to do that. Um, so I'm interested in actually seeing like that Fletch movie with John Hammond. You, you and nobody else. I can make ten dollars. You, you you tell me how it is when it comes out. I will. Yep. I didn't realize you liked Fletch so much. I like the idea of Fletch much more than the actuality of Fletch the movie. I've read the books, and they're much better than that movie is. Like, I don't care about anything. 
Dude. I haven't seen a single one of those movies in like 30 years, probably. Right. No, I haven't either. Like, I all may have been a little bit more recent, but yeah. All right, fine. You don't like Fletch. You don't like comedy. You're the one that doesn't like fun. Fuck you. <laughs> Did I say you didn't like fun? I, you, you told me that it's like I like I don't like demons and then fun, but I think you mistyped something when you because it was when you woke up in the morning at one point. It was when I like made a joke about Chris Paul like never winning a championship, and then you said that no, you said that I'm the enemy of fun. You are the enemy of fun. Well. You're anti-fun. You don't want. You don't want. <laughs> Never mind. That'd be a terrible thing to say. What's that? I don't yeah. want to say it. It's terrible. Whatever. The golf stream is getting ready to like just fucking collapse on us. You know. All right. Well, then I'll say it. <laughs> I knew that would get you. <laughs> you don't. You don't want things to go back to normal because that would mean that you might actually have to go out and do something enjoyable. So as long as we're stuck, like, isolating and fucking, like, not being able to have, go out that's, and do that's, fun, that's, 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 fun that's, times. That, that's bullshit, first of all. Like, it is. I'm a, dooms- I'm a doomsayer. I always have been. I always will be. I told you guys this shit a long time ago. I was like, and, and I was being sincere. I didn't want this to be the truth. I saw it coming. I knew it was coming and I didn't want it to be the truth. I hoped that we would get vaccinated with enough we are people. Vaccinated. Eh. No, you and I are. You still never want to have fun again. Go 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 ahead. Go go ahead and mix with Well, I can't because well, your negative why? attitude why? is why? You, 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 you've had plenty of chances to do it with other people. You don't have, I know, I and I, I haven't. Because I'm trying, I'm trying to be a reasonable... Why, 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 why? Why? Because it's dangerous. Right? Right. But I want it to not be dangerous, and you don't care. You don't ever want to go back to the bar again. Let's just say it. That's not true. Like, that's not true. Enemy of fun. <laughs> um... I just don't want to. I just, I, I, as long as we, I don't have to deal with those other people. <laughs> That's all I, I care about. I mean, who can who can cause that to happen? You, oh. <laughs> Frank. <laughs> you're 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 Mr. Gladhander. You love to talk to everybody and just you know like can't um, help it. I'm I, I'm an outgoing guy. Right. Yeah. Uh, I just care I, about like, I, I like you guys I like I like I like fun. It's like. It, it, I don't need any forced bullshit, you know. I like um, enjoying myself and fun. Yeah, right. Like the good yeah. time. Except for you don't like to watch comedy, so. I like to live the comedy, buddy. I don't need to sit on the couch and watch it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to this point. Um, hopefully, we made up for um, probably some of them bitching about some of your favorites.